beloved, the way a congregation fixes its eyes on Christ, our soul's reward, as we just sang, the way a congregation does that is to dwell on the riches of his word. We must abide in his word, together hold fast to his word, so that we can persevere to the end. And so this morning as we return to our sermon series in 1 Corinthians, let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's word to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 We'll look at verses 1 to 11. And as is always appropriate, let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would now open our eyes to see the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in us the hope of glory. Lord, we pray that the resurrection power of your spirit, the same power that caused us to be born again, might transform our lives, that we might walk in love and holiness and unity. Make known to us the immeasurable riches of your grace in Christ, so that our faith faith might not rest in the wisdom of this age, but in the power of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Brothers, when does a church begin to drift away from the gospel? When does a church begin to drift away from the gospel? And by that I don't mean when does a church abandon its statement of faith. You will find plenty of churches in the UAE that have a sound statement of faith, but are filled with people whose lives are out of step with the gospel. No, I'm talking about that gap that exists between what they say they believe and how they actually live. How does that gap form? How does it come about? Well, this is how it happens. When a church begins to admire and adopt the values of the surrounding culture, that's when it begins to slowly drift away from the gospel, creating that gap. You see, many churches are infected with this false teaching that while it's necessary to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they think it's perfectly all right to have your lives informed and shaped by cultural ideas. Some churches even boast in this. This is what gives their church a distinct cultural flavor, they say. And so you can have a church with Indian Christianity, and the gap looks different depending on which part of India you're from. Or you can have American Christianity, shaped and formed by American cultural values. You can have Filipino Christianity, shaped and formed by Filipino cultural values. And for expats like us, it can be a combination of values that we pick and choose from the buffet of cultures all around us. Brothers, when we put our trust in cultural values instead of the word of Christ, our lives will fail to produce by the Spirit's power the kind of fruit that glorifies God. 
Beloved, the obedience of faith which ought to mark the life of every disciple cannot, let me repeat that, it cannot be cultivated from the soil of cultural wisdom. No, the obedience of faith is a good work that sprouts from the power of the gospel. That's why in such cases, when people are trusting in cultural wisdom to direct their lives, those people may confess one thing, but live in a way that is indistinguishable from the surrounding culture. There might be an appearance of godliness, a robust confession of faith even, but a life that is devoid of the Spirit's power to change. Now, the biblical solution to this is to first acknowledge the gap, to put off cultural values, to stop trusting in them to direct your life. Stop allowing those ideas to shape your thinking and allow the word of Christ to renew your mind. Brothers, our ideas, our values, our priorities, our convictions, our ambitions, and our passions must be derived from Scripture. We must put on the mind of Christ and think Christianly. Any other approach would be man-centered and devoid of the Spirit's sanctifying power. Now, some people might argue, why can't we do both? Why can't we do both? Why can't we believe in the gospel and trust in cultural values to shape our decisions and thinking? Brothers, we should not pursue both because God will not share His glory with the world. He will not share His glory with the very wisdom He has judged and made foolish through the work of His Son. That's what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers, when we believe in the gospel and simultaneously lean on cultural wisdom, we empty the gospel of its sanctifying power. 1 Corinthians 1.17 God is not glorified by that kind of thinking. The mind of Christ that is revealed to us in His Word is not compatible with the wisdom of this world. Listen to this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you embrace the gospel and continue to hold fast to it, you will be sanctified. You will grow in Christ's likeness. If you hold fast to the wisdom of the world and continue in it, you will perish. Part of what it means to be a discerning Christian is to recognize that the wisdom of the world comes in different flavors. Indian, Nigerian, Ugandan, American, Filipino, Iranian. Now, when the Corinthians wrote to Paul, he knew like a good pastor that some of them had drifted away from the gospel. They had put their trust in the wrong place. They had moved away from the apostolic word and they had become influenced by the culture around them. Paul was able to discern this because they were not behaving like people who had the spirit of Christ. Those who have the spirit submit to the lordship of Christ by submitting to his word. It is they who produce the fruit of the Spirit. Those who embrace cultural wisdom will produce worldly fruit. And as a result of embracing such wisdom, the church in Corinth had become plagued with sexual sin and jealousy and strife and lawsuits and idolatry and all kinds of quarrels over spiritual gifts. And of course, in this letter, Paul addresses those issues one by one. 
by reminding the Corinthians that it is the wisdom of the cross that ought to inform their thinking. He writes, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is the wisdom of the cross that produces a life that is marked by Christ-like love, a love that desires to use the gifts of the Spirit to build up the congregation to the glory of God and not tear it down. Now in chapter 15, where we are this morning, in chapter 15, Paul addresses some of their worldly thinking about the resurrection of believers from the dead. Now when we consider chapters 6 and 7, uh, we saw how the Corinthians may have been influenced by a philosophy that taught a very low view of the body. They thought that what ultimately mattered was the spirit, the inner person. What you did with the body was of no great consequence or significance because your spirit was saved and that's all that mattered. The body was seen as a, as a prison house for the soul. That part of you that you would eventually get rid of at death. And so the resurrection of the bodies of believers would have sounded strange and even pointless to some. But it's only till you get to chapter 15, verse 12, can you see Paul confronting this faulty thinking explicitly. explicitly. So look at verse 12 of chapter 15. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There you have it. So this is where he's heading. He wants to take that head on, and so these first 11 verses is the setup. What Paul wants to do in these verses is to say, if you say you believe the gospel, then Jesus' resurrection is crucial to this gospel message. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then the resurrection of believers from the dead is the necessary implication of His resurrection. One follows from the other. That's where he's heading. Now, as you sit here listening to this, you might be tempted to think, well, these Corinthians are really immature. Like, Where in the world did they get this idea? But friends, let me tell you that this sort of thinking exists in evangelical Christianity even today. When some Christians think about life after death, they think of heaven as some sort of spiritual, immaterial existence. One where we will be floating on clouds, playing harps, or simply floating around, doing nothing. What will heaven be like? Boring? Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. The biblical truth is that this earth will be made new. Revelation tells us that heaven will come down to earth. We will receive new resurrection bodies, physical bodies, and we will inhabit the new earth. Our existence will be very physical and earthy. Indian Christianity especially is subject to this sort of thinking about the body because of the influence of Hindu theology in our culture. And so to address this flawed idea that was robbing the Corinthians of their hope and joy, Paul reminds them of the gospel of Jesus Christ which he preached to them. He reminds them that the gospel is the proclamation of the grace of God that he has demonstrated for us in the death and resurrection of His Son. Christ's resurrection is the grounds for our hope. In Him, your future is secure. In Him, your future is secure. Now, if you remember in chapter 
14, if you remember how he ends, uh, it ends with Paul exhorting the Corinthians to pay attention to his words about the regulation of spiritual gifts in corporate worship. And Paul knew that not everyone would be happy about what he wrote. There were some in the congregation who did not acknowledge his apostleship and even challenged it. And so Paul anticipates some, some pushback. And he says this in chapter 14, 36 to 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. See, Paul's point is that they needed to remember that they do need his instruction. They received those gifts of the Spirit when they believed in the gospel that he preached to them. His apostolic word was what they needed to believe and keep believing as they waited for the coming of Jesus. This is how Jesus would sustain them till the end, through faith in this gospel. And so in this text, Paul reminds them of the very thing that he started with. The grace of God that was given them in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.4. So he's coming back to the beginning. And that grace ensures that we will be resurrected from the dead. And so friends, here's the first lesson that we can learn from this passage. Number one, the gospel is crucial. The gospel is crucial. We must never move away from it. Our salvation is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our past, our present, and our future. It is the foundation of the church. It is the church's beating heart and the church's power station. The gospel is crucial. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. He's addressing the congregation. The yous are in plural. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel. Now that word gospel simply means good news. It is the word or message of the cross that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 1.18. And the Corinthians received it. They accepted this message that Paul proclaimed for one and a half years in Corinth while he was there. You can read about that in Acts 18. During his time there, he reasoned with Jews and Greeks from the Old Testament scriptures that Messiah was Jesus. Now, this word gospel has a rich Old Testament background. And it's important for us to know that because this good news that Paul proclaimed and we proclaim here at Grace Church week after week is nothing but the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. You see, the cross is the climax of redemption history. Everything we say about this message must be understood against this Old Testament background and in those categories. Not in our own cultural categories, but in Old Testament categories. You see, in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah speaks of the restoration of Israel after exile. And he describes it in terms of a new exodus. It is this work of God that is announced to the people as good news or glad tidings. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. 
Or take Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Brothers, the gospel is news. It is an announcement. You know, much like, the, much like when the angels announced to the shepherds. You remember that? Luke 2, 10 to 11, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Old Testament promise fulfilled, a Savior, Old Testament promise fulfilled, who is Messiah the Lord, Old Testament promise fulfilled. You see, Paul says to the Corinthians, you not only heard the gospel and believed in it, but the gospel is also the reason for your current spiritual position. It is the gospel in which you stand. This is your identity. You are a spiritual people. You are Christians. You are members of the body of Christ because of this gospel. It is the gospel that creates a new people, that gives us a new identity. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. <clears throat> Beloved, this gospel is the reason why we call each other brothers and sisters. God has adopted us and brought us into the household of God, into His family. See, what has united us is far more powerful than our differences. This is important to recognize so that we do not build up walls of ethnic distinctions or cultural preferences in the body of Christ. We want to rather build a community of Christians where the Word of God creates and forms a distinct culture. We're citizens of the new Jerusalem, we have a different culture. And this culture is foolish to the world, but it's honoring to Christ. It is grounded in the gospel. But this gospel is not just something that was part of the Corinthians' past. Yes, they heard it and they believed it, but Paul reminds them that the gospel is the means of their present salvation. Look at the text, verse 2. And by which referring to the gospel they received and in which they stand, by that gospel, you are being saved. Paul, of course, is talking about their sanctification. The New Testament writers often speak of our salvation using all three tenses, past, present, and future. So Titus 3, 4-5, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, past tense. That's what Jesus accomplished for us in His death and resurrection. He purchased a people for Himself by His own blood. Or Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. This, of course, speaks of our justification, how we are made right. With God. Salvation is a free gift that we receive through faith in the righteousness of another and not our own. 
Our salvation is also described in the future tense. Mark 13, 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Those who receive salvation by grace through faith in the righteousness of Christ will endure in their faith. They will keep believing till the end and will be glorified. They will be saved. Friends, this is why we can never move away from the gospel. This is our lifeline. The gospel is crucial. The gospel is crucial. Sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that justification is by faith, but sanctification or our growth in holiness is by works. People think that the gospel is a get-out-of-hell-free ticket. And now that I've received it, thank you, Jesus, you know, I've got my lifetime subscription, my hell insurance. I could handle things from here on. I'll try and live a good life to the best of my abilities. Beloved, anyone who thinks like that does not understand the gospel. <clears throat> All of salvation, past, present, and future, from beginning to the end, is by grace through faith in this gospel. This is why we can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 During membership interviews, I often like to ask people why they think they're going to heaven. Why do you think you're going to heaven? And I've noticed that people who don't understand the gospel will invariably make a great effort to tell me how well they have lived their Christian lives after believing in Jesus. It's a very veiled, subtle way of saying, well, because I deserve it for all the effort I put in. It's not perfect, it's something. Brothers, that kind of talk is the most graceless, godless, painful thing that anyone can hear. Any growth in godliness, according to the scriptures, comes by faith in the gospel. Such faith works by the Spirit's power to produce a life of love and good works to the glory of God. And because faith in the gospel is the means by which we are being saved, it is required of us that we hold fast to it, that we keep believing. Look at the verse. Paul says, you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, saving faith is a faith that continues to believe. If not, it is not saving faith. It is a faith that is in vain. It produces nothing. It's of no use. Brothers, the gospel is a pro proclamation about the grace of God revealed in the death and resurrection of His Son. But, listen carefully, it is possible to receive that grace in vain. To hear that to no effect. Jesus spoke about this kind of vain belief in the parable of the soils. Not everyone receives or believes in the word of the gospel in the same way, he said. In that parable, Jesus tells us about how one receives the word of the gospel, which he likens to seed. And he says it depends on the kind of soil it falls upon. 
Some seeds will fall on the open pathway, some on rocky ground, some among thorns, and some on good soil. Listen to Matthew 13, 19 to 23. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty and another thirty. Beloved, what makes the good soil good? Who's responsible for that? If you read Matthew 13 carefully, Jesus begins that chapter by telling his disciples why some people understand and why others don't. Matthew 13 verse 11, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. To you it has been given. Brothers, that is the language of grace. It is the Spirit of God who gives us new hearts to believe and understand. He is the one who removes the heart of stone and plants a heart of flesh. Fertile soil. It is the gift of God. And beloved, where God is at work in power, such faith will never be in vain will never be in vain. So a lot is at stake here as Paul reminds the Corinthians about the gospel. If they don't see the gap, if they don't see the drift and turn and hold fast to what they believed from the beginning, they might have believed in vain, he says. Beloved, how would you describe your faith? Is it a faith that works? Or have you received the grace of God in vain? I pray that none of you have. But brothers, this is an important question to contemplate. Because one day, you will die. And your body will go into the ground. And you will become food for worms. And all kinds of creeping things. And soon you will stand before God and give an account. How will you fare? J.C. Ryle once wrote, I tremble to think how those will fare who have received the grace of God in vain. I tremble to think how they will be dealt with who have a long account of Bibles unread and prayer neglected, churches despised and sacraments dishonors, pastors disregarded and sermons scorned. I tremble to find it plainly declared by Christ himself, Christ the compassionate and tender-hearted, 
that even Sodom and Gomorrah will be mercifully treated compared with those who have been called upon to repent and have not repented. Who have been invited to believe in Jesus and have not believed. And for all these causes and for many more of which we cannot speak, particularly we do beseech you and implore you to beware lest you receive the grace of God in vain. To beware of hearing without improving. To beware of professing while you are not growing. To beware of giving your ears to God, but not your heart. Beloved, while this is indeed a warning to the Corinthians, Paul is confident that they will heed the warning. That they will allow the gospel to shape their thinking once again. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58, he addresses them as beloved brothers. But what was this gospel that did not square with the culture of Corinth? What was this gospel that did not square with the philosophical ideas of Corinth? What was this message that he wanted to remind them of? Now, if you're new to Grace Church, if you've not been with us since we began this series in 1 Corinthians, then I'm glad that you are with us today. Because in the following verses, following verses, Paul summarizes for us that very message that he preached to the Corinthians. See, one of the reasons this congregation was not doing well spiritually was because they had shifted away from the truths and the implications of this message and turned to cultural ideas that made them feel special about themselves. And Paul says, the message is not about you. And that brings us to the second lesson we can learn from this passage. And that is, the gospel is not about us. The gospel is crucial. The gospel is not about us. It is about Jesus and what He has done. It is not about our story. It is about His story. Friends, the gospel is not about turning over a new leaf. It's not about finding ourselves or becoming the best versions of ourselves. It's not about tapping into your inner potential or positive energy. It's not about holding on to the best of all cultures. It's not about following your heart. It's not about holding on to to a particular message and helping God. It's not about how we can work our way to Him. It's not a message about how we can cooperate with God to make our lives better. It's not about balancing our bad deeds with our good deeds. It's not about self-discovery or self-esteem. The gospel is a word that is outside of us. It is a word outside of us. It is a message about the sovereign grace of God. Beloved, our salvation does not come from within us. No, it comes from outside of us. It is an announcement made to us that is objective and biblical and historical. It is about what God has done in human history through His Son in order to reconcile sinners to Himself. Look at verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Note that this language is very similar to chapter 11, verse 23. A passage on the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Very similar language, isn't it? This kind of language is used to describe the the handing down of traditions or teaching. It sounds confessional, something that might have been memorized even. 
Now we know that Paul himself received this message directly from the risen Lord Jesus. He says in Galatians 1, 11 to 12, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. God himself made known to Paul what he had done through the person of his son. This message, says Paul, is of first importance. So Paul taught the Corinthians many things, but chief among them was the gospel. The gospel was central to his teaching ministry. It was preeminent. It bled into everything he taught. It was first of all. And what was that message? Look at the text. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died. The Messiah died. The anointed one died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He's talking about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.1 Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ. Who? Jesus the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune God, the one through whom the world was created, took on flesh and entered into this world in the person of Jesus to accomplish what God had sent him to do. He came to fulfill the Father's plan. And this plan was revealed to God's people through his prophets progressively in piecemeal over time. This is the one who was anointed to be our Savior. And Paul says, here's the good news. He died for our sins, just as the Old Testament said he would, according to the Scriptures. Beloved, I want you to note what the inspired Word of God says. <clears throat> for the gospel to be the gospel, it's not enough to proclaim historical facts. No, you need to proclaim a theological interpretation of those facts. Something happened in history and God needs to tell us what the significance of that was. Only God can tell us that. And He does tell us that in His Word. Jesus died. That's a historical fact. Both Roman historians like Tacitus, often called the greatest Roman historian, and Jewish historians like Josephus, both of them non-Christians, attest that Jesus died under Pontius Pilate while Tiberius was emperor. But what history cannot tell you is why he died. You see, even a film like The Passion of the Christ leaves you in shock, but it never really tells you why that happened. Why did he die? Why did he rise from the dead? But God in His Word tells us, Romans 4.25, He was delivered up for our trespasses, our sins, or our offenses, and raised for our justification. Now this should raise the question, offenses against whom? Why does the Messiah have to die for our sins? <clears throat> Beloved, it is the consistent testimony of the Scriptures of God Himself that instead of leaning on His wisdom and walking in His ways, we have all chosen our own paths and we have disobeyed our Maker. Sin first shows up in the garden when Adam and Eve trusted in a lie instead of trusting in God's good and gracious Word. Since that fateful day, all of mankind has been plunged into sin. 
And because of our rebellion, God, who is infinitely holy and just, stands over us in judgment. We are born into this world as sinners by nature, and we sin by choice because of that nature. <coughs> and since Adam was the head of all mankind, we have all inherited Adam's guilt. Listen to the testimony of Scripture. Genesis 6-5. Man is described as wicked and having evil thoughts continually. Ecclesiastes 7-20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes 9-3. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. Friends, death entered into our world as a result of human rebellion against God. And Paul tells us that it is the wages that God hands out for our disobedience. That's the salary you earn for disobeying God. Death. Every human funeral is a reminder of that fateful day when we chose ourselves over God. Psalm 58 verse 3 says, We are estranged from the womb. Man goes astray from birth speaking lies. Isaiah 53 verse 6, all like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. John 3, 18 to 19, outside of Christ, we love the darkness and, and we are condemned already. John 5, 40, we refuse to come to Christ that we may have life. John 8, 34, we are slaves to sin. Romans 3, 10 to 11, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3, 18, we do not fear God. Romans 5.10, we are enemies of God. Romans 8.7, our minds are hostile to God. We do not submit to God's law. Indeed, we cannot. 1 Corinthians 2.14, apart from a saving relationship with Christ, we are spiritually foolish. Ephesians 2.1, the sinner is dead in his sins and needs to be made alive. Ephesians 2.2, we are sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2.3, we are children of wrath. That's the bad news. We are headed for destruction and we don't want to do anything about it. We are hell bound and blind and wretched and helpless. And to top it all off, we are so blind that we think we are good people. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God in His mercy sent His Son to save us from our sins. And this is how he did it. In keeping with all the promises of the Old Testament, he took our sins upon himself and died in our place as a substitute. He gave himself up as a sacrifice of atonement in order to reconcile us to God. This is what Isaiah 53 verse 6 says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Friends, he did not die for his sins. He died for ours. He was sinless. He was the lamb without blemish. And the death he died, he died for the sake of sinners, for all who would repent of their sins and put their trust in his saving death. 
God did this. God planned this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Friend, if you're not a Christian, please know that we are glad that you are here. But I want you to know today, hear me out, that salvation is found in no other name than the name of Jesus. If you acknowledge your sins and you turn away from them and put your trust in Him, you will be saved. Forgiveness of sins is found only in Christ and no other. Only the Son of God could have taken on the infinite punishment that you and I deserve so that we can be made right with God. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. There is no other religion, no other way by which you can be saved. This is God's doing. This is His way. This is His plan. Turn to Christ and you will know the sweetness of knowing God as your Father. Turn to Him and you will receive eternal life. Turn to Christ and you will have a sure hope that though you may die, you will be resurrected from the dead and live forevermore with your Savior. Friends, the Bible teaches us to anticipate and understand Jesus' death in these Old Testament categories. Think about the Exodus. During the time of the Exodus, the people of Israel are delivered from their bondage through the blood of a lamb. After they are rescued, God gives them a system of animal sacrifices to bring animals without defect so that people could lay their hands on their heads and then offer them as a substitute to deal with their guilt. People were taught that without dealing with their sin in this way would cause God to break out against them in judgment. Isaiah takes that imagery and he applies it to the Messiah as he describes him as what? As a lamb led to the slaughter. Do you remember what John the Baptist calls him? He says, behold the lamb who takes away the sins, not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles also of the world. You see, he died. He didn't appear to die like the Muslims say. He died. He truly died. And we know that because he was buried. He was buried. Look at verse 4. That he was buried. There was an end to his suffering. He died and his corpse, a corpse was put in a tomb. Unlike some skeptics who claim that he merely fainted and then got up later, Jesus really died. You see, the Romans were experts at crucifying people. And they made sure of that by thrusting a spear into his heart and settling that issue once for all. And he was buried according to Jewish rites, wrapped in 100 pounds of spices and laid in a tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. This was no secret operation. Everyone knew where that tomb was. The Pharisees knew that Jesus said that he would rise from the dead. They didn't believe it. But just to make sure that his, his disciples wouldn't steal the body and then claim a resurrection, they asked Pilate to place a guard of soldiers at the tomb and seal it. I want you to think about that. This is government-sanctioned security. 
by the world's most powerful empire. They knew what they put into that tomb. They sealed it. They stood guard. And they were told, make sure that doesn't come out. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. Just imagine that. He rose from the dead. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, oh, don't fear death. Jesus rose from the dead. He said in John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. You're going to walk out and get this. No one can do anything about it. Look at the text. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The Messiah is described in Isaiah 53 verses 10 to 11 as making a guilt offering by his death and then seeing his offspring, pointing to a resurrection and as a result making many to be counted righteous. You know, when he was on earth, Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection several times. Luke 18, 31 to 34. He said to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets, Old Testament, will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now, while there is no specific text one specific text that says that the Messiah will rise on the third day. You have to keep in mind that sometimes when Paul speaks of the scriptures, he speaks of the Old Testament scriptures as a whole. And so when you survey the Old Testament, there seems to be a general pattern in scriptures that points to a life-giving deliverance on the third day. In Genesis chapter 1, you see the dry land emerging from its watery grave and vegetation springing up to life on the third day. In Genesis 22, verse 9, Isaac was delivered from being sacrificed. Do you remember when? On the third day. Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. He was delivered on the third day. Jesus himself connects his resurrection, death and resurrection to, to, to Jonah's deliverance. Luke 11:30. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, this is the guy who was in the fish, now he's alive. As Jonah became assigned to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Or take Hosea 6 verse 2. When the people of Israel said of God, after two days He will revive us, on the third day He will raise us up, that we may live before Him. Friends, the resurrection is good news because it demonstrates that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus was victorious over Satan, sin and death, and the Spirit raised him up to newness of life, of life as the first fruits of a greater harvest. We are told that all those who are united to Christ by faith have this great hope that just as he rose from the dead, we too will rise from the dead with new resurrection bodies. We have this assurance because the Spirit who raised him from the dead, he has given us new hearts and he abides with us. He is the guarantee of our hope. See, Jesus rose and He ascended into heaven and He sent the Holy Spirit who now applies the benefits of His saving death by faith. This is the gospel by which 
we are being saved. Beloved, our lives are wholly bound to His, to the one who now reigns from heaven. You see, you and I were not born when Jesus died on that cross. And yet, when He accomplished His saving work, He had you and I in mind. He died for all those the Father had given Him. That's the truth. We act out in baptism, don't we? We identify with His death and His burial and His resurrection as we go into the water and as we come out, we are acknowledging to all that we are a new creation in Jesus. We have been born again through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now we know that Jesus rose from the dead because His tomb was empty. And His tomb remains empty. Peter, quoting Psalm 16 in his Pentecost sermon, said that King David died, he was buried, and that his remains were in his tomb, and that tomb was known to all. And yet, David said that God would not let his flesh see corruption, but would set one of his descendants on his throne. And Peter says, David was speaking about Jesus. Acts 2, 31-32, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did, it, did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of, and of that we are all witnesses. There is a prophet who is greatly revered in this country. He died in AD 632. He's buried in Medina. We know where his remains are. There is only one person who has walked out of a tomb with a new resurrection body. And he is alive. And he is reigning from heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is incredibly good news. If the Pharisees or the Roman government wanted to crush Christianity at the very beginning, all they had to do was produce the body. It would have been over. But in fact, the chief priests were so bewildered and worried that they paid the soldiers a large sum of money. They bribed the soldiers. You can read about that in Matthew 28, 12 to 15. They bribed the soldiers to spread a rumor that the disciples stole the body while they were asleep. It's like the most ridiculous rumor. What happened to Jesus? Oh, the disciples stole the body while we were asleep. Well, if you were asleep, how do you know who stole the body? It didn't work. It didn't work because not only did Jesus actually rise and the tomb was empty, He made appearances. He rose from the dead and He stayed that way. Look at verses 5 to 8. And that He appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Then to the twelve, that's the twelve apostles that Jesus chose. Judas was dead by then, but perhaps Matthias was present, not yet appointed, but present. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. You know, skeptics have often tried to chalk up Jesus' resurrection appearances to hallucinations. Oh, these poor disciples, oh, they loved him so much, they missed him so much, that they thought they saw him, and they didn't. 500 people don't hallucinate at the same time. These were not private experiences that people were having behind closed doors. He was publicly crucified, buried in a well-known location, and then made public appearances for 40 days before his ascension. For 40 days he was walking around. 
Then he says this about the 500 witnesses, most of whom are still alive. In other words, these are verifiable witnesses. If you want, you can go ask them. They're still alive, though some have fallen asleep. You know, this is Paul's way of speaking about a believer's death. They have fallen asleep. Jesus' victory over death demonstrated by his resurrection gives us hope that one day the dead will rise from their sleep to new resurrection bodies. This was the very thing that the Corinthians were denying. This is Paul's way of saying death does not have the last word. They are sleeping. They will get up. When the Son of Man speaks, they will rise. Then he appeared to James. This refers to Jesus' brother, not James, the son of Zebedee. He was one of the twelve. Then to all the apostles. That tells you that the twelve were a distinct group. There were others who were also commissioned by Christ, like Paul and Barnabas. Luke refers to them as apostles in Acts 14.14. Now, I don't think he's listing every witness because we know that there were several women who were the first to see him. No, he's listing the people that the Corinthians have a high regard for. Peter, James, and the others. Remember, his apostleship was being challenged at Corinth. But he's nevertheless an apostle to whom Jesus also appeared. Look at verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Notice he says, last of all. Paul here is <clears throat> recounting his conversion on the road to Damascus. That's recorded for us in Acts 9. After appearing to Paul, Jesus did not make any more post-ascension appearances. Last of all, he appeared to me. So if some prosperity gospel teacher tells you that Jesus appeared to me, that conflicts with this text. No, we know when the last appearance was. Last of all, he appeared to Paul as one untimely born. What does that mean? That word untimely born refers to a premature birth or a miscarriage. You know, it indicates something out of the ordinary, something that takes you by surprise, something you don't expect, something that doesn't follow the usual pattern. It's unexpected. And Paul uses this term because he's keenly aware of what a wretched, undeserving person he was. Look at the next verse. That appearance was unexpected for, verse 9, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He chased after Christians. He forced them to blaspheme. He cast his vote against Stephen. He raided the homes of Christians. He dragged men and women off to prison in bonds. This weighed on him heavily. This was a man who was keenly aware of his sins keenly aware of his sins, and yet profoundly changed by the gospel. The same gospel that he preached to the Corinthians. And that brings us to our third and final lesson. The gospel is crucial. The gospel is not about us. And number three, the gospel never changes, but it certainly changes those who believe. The gospel never changes, but it certainly changes those who believe. See, when Paul encountered the risen Christ, everything changed. Look at verses 10 to 11. 
He is the least of the apostles. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, when Paul speaks of the grace of God, he's speaking of God's grace to him in Christ. He's speaking of what Christ did for him on the cross and through his resurrection. It is that very message that he has been proclaiming and applying from the very beginning. God's undeserving favor had come to him in Christ and with that very same resurrection power. And it made him alive, spiritually alive. And it didn't just make him alive and bring him to saving faith in Christ. He was united to the risen Christ. His life was not the same after that. You know, if you can say the disciples cooked it up, how do you explain Paul? He was persecuting the church. How do you explain that change? Jesus appeared to him. Notice how objective those words are. Paul doesn't say, those people claim to have saw him. No, he appeared. He showed up. His life changed. Not only did he believe, but he continued to believe. Look at the text. And his grace toward me was not in vain. It was not useless. Oh, brothers and sisters, you should want this. You should want this. You should want people to stand at your graveside and say, the grace of God towards this brother is not in vain. The grace of God towards this sister was not in vain. And then you should say, see you later and walk away. On the contrary, he says, I worked harder than any of them. Any of them. He's talking about the other apostles. You know, those apostles that the Corinthians had a high regard for. What does he mean by work? I worked. He's talking about his apostolic ministry. The work of preaching the gospel in places where Christ had not been named. The work of teaching and planting churches. And yet, this was not Paul's way of saying, I'm better than them. Rather, he's pointing to the abundance of the faithful work that God had worked through him. He means to say that, lest anyone accuse him of boasting. He says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. See, Paul didn't work hard to repay God for his grace. Rather, it was the grace of God present with him through the Spirit's power that enabled him to work as a response. It was all of grace. And that's what he wants the Corinthians, and that's what he wants us to see. See, this work that I do is not a display of my strength, but by the grace of God. It is the grace of God. In other words, it is Christ who has accomplished this through me. Beloved, is that the way you think about your life? About what you accomplish? After you love your wife, after you deny yourself for your family, after you serve other members in the congregation, after you give generously, after you take time to counsel, after you take time to weep with another member, after you serve faithfully at work, at the end of the day when you lie on the bed, do you pat yourself on the back and think, you know, I've accomplished a lot today. Or do you give thanks for the grace of God that is with you? This is what Christ accomplishes through us. 
Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, in other words, he's saying you need to understand something. Since you Corinthians like to form factions around different leaders, I want you to know whether it was I or any other apostle, so we preach and so you believed. Paul is saying that what I preached was no different than what the others preached. And so you believed. This is the basis for our faith. All these other apostles were witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, which is central to the gospel we preach. We're all on the same page. That's what he's saying. If you reject the message of the resurrection of the dead, you are not just rejecting some teaching that is unique to me, says Paul. You're rejecting a core plank in the gospel. Your salvation stands upon this. If you walk away from this, you walk away from the gospel. Beloved, without the resurrection of Jesus, we would not have the new birth. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we would not have our new birth and our union with Christ through the Spirit. We would not be able to think Christianly. Our ability to think Christianly depends on the resurrection. Colossians 3, 1-2, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. The resurrection also matters for how we battle sin and temptation. Think about what Romans 6 says, Just as Christ died and is alive to God, so too we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Beloved, it is this resurrection power that enables us to put sin to death and pursue righteousness. Friends, we are who we are because of the grace of God. Remember the gospel every day. Stand firm in that grace so that we can say with Paul, His grace toward me was not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, we rejoice in the gospel. And we pray, O oh Lord, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead would be alive and active and manifest through the lives of every member. We pray that this power would transform us, that we would think Christianly, that we would put to death everything that is earthly in us, and that we would pursue righteousness for the glory of your name. Help us do this Oh Lord, we do not know how to do this without your grace. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.